How are you? Yeah, you guys doing all right? Got a full house this morning almost. That's real encouraging. The rain didn't stop people from getting here. It usually does, but not today, right? It's a good deal. Now keep your Bibles right there where, where we just read because that's going to be our text for this morning. Two weeks ago, we looked at how Paul had been brought before the Jewish high court, the Sanhedrin, to be tried uh, for allegedly teaching against the people, teaching against the Jewish law, teaching against the temple, all things Jewish. He was allegedly, he was brought in for allegedly preaching against those things and heresy, if you will, and apostasy in these things. Paul, when he was brought before the court, he reasoned in his mind that he would not uh, receive a fair trial because the high priest Ananias was corrupt and the rest of the court was biased and, and just incompetent. In an effort to prove his reasoning, he declared that he was on trial because of his belief in or of the resurrection of the dead. The Pharisees who supported his view sided with him and then argued against the Sadducees, who were another group in part of that court, who rejected that view. Uh, the courtroom exploded in heated debate, which eventually turned violent, uh, thus proving Paul's point. How can you get a fair trial in a court that's going crazy like that, right? So he pretty much proved his point. Fearing that he would be torn in two by these two different religious groups, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, the Roman tribune, uh, Claudius Lysias, he intervened and removed Paul from the courthouse by force. He had to forcibly send his troops down into the area where they were uh, wrestling and fighting and arguing and, and trying to tear Paul apart. He had to send them down in there to kind of beat their way into that group and grab Paul and rescue him and pull him out. He brought him back to the barracks. The next night, Paul sat alone in his prison cell. He was physically battered because he had been beaten by the group, the Sadducees, and the day before that, he had been beaten in the outer court of the temple. So this guy was a, was a, a bloody pulp. He was a mess. He was physically beaten. And he was also emotionally and spiritually worn out as well. And so he sat in his prison cell on the next night just discouraged and uncertain about the future and what would happen. And at about that time when he reached that the high point of his uh, sadness, if you will, and discouragement, the Lord Jesus appeared to him in a vision and encouraged him and affirmed him, said something to the effect of, you've done your job here and preached the gospel in Jerusalem. And then he also said, I'm now going to send you up towards Rome. And so it was this really neat moment where this guy was all alone and just discouraged and, and God showed up in an amazing way and encouraged him. I mean, think of somebody like Hagar in the Old Testament who was all alone with her child in the desert and the angel of the Lord came and it was this really amazing thing. And so that's where we left off. That was where we stopped. This morning, we're going to look at three things. We're going to look at the plot to kill Paul. We're going to look at the plan to save Paul. And we're going to look at the providence of God. Those are the three things that we're going to focus on. Let's pray and then get right to work because I have a ginormous section to cover Father, send your Holy Spirit to move in power during the preaching of your word. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Why not just get right to the point, right? I could say all kinds of stuff. So let's begin with the plot to kill Paul, and that's going to start up at verses 12 and 13. Let's look at it. Verse 12, when it was day, the Jews made a plot and bound themselves by an oath neither to eat nor drink till they had killed Paul. There were more than 40 who made this conspiracy. The Jews mentioned in verse 12 may have belonged to the group known as the Zealots. Have you heard of them? The Zealots. This was a political religious group that ran around during that day. They were sort of the terrorists of that day. They were nationalists and they hated the Roman government and wanted them out of there. And they hated people that, that uh, basically stood up against them as well. They were absolute political opponents of Rome, and they very often resorted to violence and acts of terrorism against the Roman Empire and against those who fronted them. Um, now, they had close ties to this other group called the Sadducees who made up the majority of the Sanhedrin. 
because the Sadducees were kind of like religious leaders, but they were really like religious political leaders. Their emphasis was on politics. And, and so, you know, the Pharisees on the other side of that, their emphasis was on the scripture. And so you had the Sadducees who were in kind of cahoots with the Zealots. The Zealots would get orders from the Sadducees at times. And, and so they were kind of tied to that group, if you will. And, and an interesting thing is, is that the actual high priest, the highest court leader in the Sanhedrin, was a Sadducee. We call him the high priest. You remember Caiaphas was the high priest during Jesus' day. This is Ananias now during this day, 20 years later or so. And so the high priest, the, um, there's another group in the Sanhedrin called chief priests. They're like an underleader to the, to the uh, high priest. And then there's elders. All three of those groups were comprised of Sadducees, political leaders. Now the Jews, these zealots, if you will, put together a plan to kill Paul. They were so serious about it that they took an oath, okay, between themselves and before God neither to eat nor drink until they had succeeded in killing Paul. Like, we're so serious about killing him that we're not going to eat and drink until we kill him. Which tells me something really quickly. Their plan was an expedited plan. They weren't planning on going two weeks without food and water. They wanted to kill him very, very quickly so that they could go get back to their top ramen and Mountain Dew, if you will. That was my teenage sustenance, right, and video games, and back then it was real lame because it was Pong, you probably, the young guys are like, that's just stupid, I play Call of Duty, so anyways, they were so serious about killing this guy that they took this crazy oath, and the idea here is that we will not eat or drink until we have killed him, and if we do not succeed, then God can just kill us, <laughs> that takes it up a notch, right? We won't eat or drink, but we'll just die if we don't get our hands on him and kill this guy. The word oath is translated from the Greek verb uh, anathematize, which means to put on a curse or to put under a curse. You've heard, have you ever heard that word, anathema? It means to curse someone. And, and so they anathematized themselves. They said, man, if we don't get the job done, not only will we not eat or drink, we're going to die. That's how serious they were about killing this guy. It was their sole purpose for probably the next 24 or 48 hours. It's all they thought about. And then another interesting fact in this text is in 13 there, and it says there were more than 40 men. It doesn't say there were 40 men. It says there were more than 40 men who came together to, to create this conspiracy, to come up with this plan to kill this dude. So there was 41, 42, 43, 51, I don't know. There was more than 40 guys involved in this thing. And that's just crazy to me. Now, let's continue with this plot to kill Paul in 14 and 15. It says they went. Now, this is the zealot group, the 40 plus, right? They went to the chief priest and elders and said, we have strictly bound ourselves by an oath to taste no food till we have killed Paul. Now, therefore, like here's their instructions to them. Here's what we've done. Now, here's what we want you to do. Now, therefore, along with the council, give notice to the tribune to bring him down, speaking of Paul, to you, as though you were going to determine his case more exactly, and we are ready to kill him before he draws near. Now, the Jews here, this zealot group, this, these conspirators went to members of the Sanhedrin, right? They went to some of the chief priests and elders. These are members of the Sanhedrin. And they informed them of their oath and invited them to help. It's like they went to solicit their support and help in this thing. Now, Luke included three details about their plan here. A... The chief priests and elders were to, this is what they wanted them to do, the chief priests and elders were to seek to gain support or gain the support of the council. That's a reference to the whole Sanhedrin, that 72-member high court. Now, this would not be an easy task for the chief priest and for the elders because some of that high court was comprised of Pharisees who had sided with Paul two days earlier. So, you know, there were probably, there were 72 members of the Sanhedrin and there were probably about, you know, 20 or 30 of them or 15 of them that were Pharisees. Somehow these Sadducees would have to go and 
get the support of the Pharisees to do this too, which I think ultimately they would if they thought it through because they hated Jesus. They hate the gospel at the end of the day. They hate those things. So they had to go get the support of like this whole Sanhedrin, the all 72 members. If they could gain the support from all the members of the Sanhedrin, it would help to legitimize their petition. The more people you have on board in some kind of a political thing, the more likely you are to have success in getting done what you aim to get done. That's the idea here. B, the Sanhedrin was then to draw up a petition asking for Paul to be brought before them for another hearing where they would re-examine the case more closely. Now, the day before, it was a total train wreck. They were trying to interview Paul. They were trying to talk to him and get to the bottom of the situation. Paul, knowing that he couldn't get a fair trial, said a few theological things and caused the whole room to explode. So their first time around, they had no success in gleaning any information and figuring out anything about Paul, to, a, to an effect that is. And so here the idea is, okay, look, we've got it together now. We're not going to fight over the resurrection and these things we disagree on. And we want to take a closer look at his case. It's not your issue to have to do that, Tribune. So you brought him to us originally. And so we're going to go ahead and take care of that. Now that's the idea here. And then the zealots, see, the zealots were to assassinate Paul as he was being led to the meeting place where the Sanhedrin gathered, probably the Hall of Hewn Stone. They would likely mix in with the crowd because you basically had to go through or near the temple to do this. There were always pilgrims and people there at the temple worshiping God. And, and so they would likely mix in with the crowd and with the masses. And then as Paul drew close to the Hall of Hewn Stone, somebody would slip in close to him with a dagger and probably stick it into his kidney from behind or something of that nature. Now the zealots were known for this kind of attack. They were very stealthy, and they would look like the average person. They would slip in, grab them, shank them, and walk away. And our beloved John back there has probably seen that stuff because he's a prison guard. And that's just kind of the way that things happen sometimes. So that's the plan, if you will. Those are the details about their plan. Now let's begin to examine, or that's their plot. Now let's begin to examine the plan to save Paul. There's a plan to save Paul here too, okay, to rescue him. And that begins at verse 16. And I love this, man. This is just craziness right here. This is one of those things where you look at it and go, okay, come on now, really? Yeah, really. Look at 16. Now the son of Paul's sister heard of their ambush, so he went and entered the barracks and told Paul. Okay, Paul had a sister, obviously, and a nephew. And this actually appears to be the only specific reference in Scripture to Paul's family. Anywhere in Scripture. In Romans 16, he mentioned a handful of names, a handful of people, and he called them his kinsmen. But if you study the Scripture, you'll also find that Paul often referred to other Jews as his kinsmen. And so those names that are in there, which are a bunch of Greek names, might not necessarily be his true flesh and blood family members. I think that this is the only reference in Scripture to his actual family. He had a sister, and he had a nephew. And, and I love that because it reminds me that he is a human being. Because we've been studying him in scripture and he, he just seems to do so many things right, right? I feel like, you know, a big turd when I'm studying him because I, I don't do a lot of things right. I mess up all the time. I sin all the time. I'm not saying Paul didn't sin. But when it came to ministry, he was so focused. He had tunnel vision for the gospel that you would be led to think at times that, well, maybe he was kind of perfect like Jesus. And maybe he didn't have family and all that. He just kind of appeared on the earth. No, he was a flesh and blood person. He sinned like we sinned. He struggled like we did. He had family members. He got tired and all of that. He was every bit as human as we are. And I love the fact that he had some family, and it's mentioned in Scripture, a sister and a nephew. Now, Paul's nephew heard about the conspiracy. Apparently, people were talking about the ambush. Well, you know, if they bring him down tomorrow morning, we'll go ahead and kill him then. And, you know, hey, uh, you know, Freddie, you get over there on that corner. And, and Mary, you distract him and wave at him and go, you know. And they, you know, they were just talking about this goofy thing. You know, the more people that you get involved in a plot, 
the more likely it is that others are going to find out about it. You've got over 40 people. Now you have 72 with the Sanhedrin. I think they were talking about this thing. And this kid's like, oh, sweetenly, right? He overhears this thing. We're just too many people talking about the scheme, so much so that they couldn't keep it a secret. And this guy hears about it. And when Paul's nephew heard of their plot, he immediately entered the barracks and told Paul, now, this shows that Paul had some level of freedom while he was in custody, right? Because it's, it just looks like in the text that the nephew just kind of walks right in to the jail and goes right up to him and starts having a conversation with him and telling him what's going on. Now, wouldn't that blow your mind, John, over at DVI where you're at if somebody just walked right in and just talked to people? That never happened, right? You got to go through a whole process there, visiting and all that stuff. Well, here we see that Paul had some autonomy, and some try to argue that Paul was in protective custody. And that's why his nephew had easy access to him, if you will. And I think that's a bit of a stretch. Down in verse 18, we're going to be there in a second. The centurion referred to Paul as a prisoner. You don't refer to those who are in protective custody as prisoners. You refer to them as people who are in protective custody. And so I don't know how this commentator came up with this idea that he was in protective custody. There might have been a protective aspect to his custody, but he was still considered a prisoner. Alleged criminals who are being held until things are sorted out are always called prisoners. The reason why Paul was able, I believe, to have visitors, and he was, you know, had a little autonomy in there, he could move around. I mean, he couldn't go outside the walls, if you will, or the gates, or maybe he was in a larger cell, I don't know. But I think the reason why he had some freedom in there was because he was a Roman citizen. We found that out a couple of sermons ago. And according to Roman law, he hadn't done anything wrong. And so there is that protective aspect to it, and he is a citizen and what have you. Now let's continue at verses 17 and 18. Paul, Paul called one of the centurions and said, Take this young man to the tribune, for he has something to tell him. So he took him and brought him to the tribune. Okay, the tribune's the highest ranking Roman leader in the area. And said, Paul the prisoner, see it there? Paul the prisoner called me and asked me to bring this young man to you as he has something to say to you. The tribune took him by the hand and going aside asked him privately, what is it that you have to tell me? Simple question. Now Paul went ahead and after he got the news from his nephew, he summoned one of the nearby centurions. They were all over the place in there and he asked him to take the young man to the tribune because he had something to tell him. Now some argue here that Paul's nephew was maybe between 18 and 30 years old. They think of him as a, what we might call a young adult, right? A young adult. Somewhere in that, that demographic. But the original Greek word for young man seems to refute that. Uh, young man is, and I'd probably mess it up by trying to pronounce it, I think it's Neainiskos, something of that nature in Greek. I'm not a Greek scholar, so I don't know how to pronounce these things. But let me tell you what it means, because this is important. In the Greek, it means teenager. Okay? So again, you know, these guys come up with these ideas. You just look at the original language, and you find out that it actually has a meaning. It's not, hey, it could be 18. I guess it could be, in a way, because 18 and 19 is still a teenager. But I don't know. It is a reference that... Neaskinosnos, or whatever word it is, is a reference to a young man who has gone through puberty but is not yet married. Now, you need to keep in mind that back in those days they married pretty young. Okay? So, Paul's nephew was very likely 13 to 16 years old. 13 to 16 years old, the, the same age as a couple of my, my boys over there and some of your children. And the centurion, you know, when he was asked to come over, he obliged Paul's request and delivered the young man to the tribune saying he has something to say to you. It almost looks like Paul didn't tell the centurion what was to be said. He just said, can you take this young man over there? And he, he's got some news to deliver to him. And then we see it says that he took him by the hand. 
right? The tribune took the young man by the hand. Now, to me, that further affirms, that affirms that the young man was younger than 18 to 30. Okay, adult males between the ages of 18 and 30 don't like to be taken by the hand by another man. I know this. I'm a 45-year-old guy, and I had a junior high ministry, and once in a while a kid would get spaghetti crazy, and I'd have to take his hand, and the whole time he'd be going, he'd be trying to pull it out because it's just kind of a, there's an awkward male-to-male dynamic there. And so, you know, I I can't imagine the Tribune going over and grabbing a a, a 26-year-old's hand. Now come over here and tell me what's going on. Kind of sashay over there with him, you know. I don't know about you, but I'd be like, I'll just tell you from here. He took him by the hand. Adult males aren't really into that. You know, I try to take Paul Rogers' hand all the time. And he's just not down with it. He barely hugs. Barely. In fact, his hugs are very rigid. You go up to him, you put your arms around him, he just kind of tenses up. And he's, he's praying, will it end soon, Lord Jesus? And you're like, come on, give in, Paul. And he's like, I can't do it. You know, that's how he is, right? See, look. He, he, he. <laughs> Can I take your right hand and turn and lead you somewhere? I'm going to try it. And I say, it won't work. You'll have a new pastor here at the church. He took him by the hand. And what was the purpose of his taking him by the hand? It was to lead him away from the others so he could have a private conversation with him. That's the idea here. He didn't want to have this conversation in front of other people. He was, the tribune was smarter than the Sanhedrin and the other group that was down there talking about this stuff openly where a teenage boy overhears them. He took him to the side. And I can tell you this, the tribune was absolutely desperate for information because he was still trying to figure out what Paul had done. And so when that young man came in and said, I have information that has to do with Paul, he's thinking, sweet, maybe I can get the information I need because I don't know, man, those Jews down there went ballistic crazy. I didn't get anything from them. Something's going on with this guy because half the city wants to kill him. This young man might have the information that I need. So he's pumped. Takes him by the hand, come over and tell me what you got for me. He wants to know what he has to say. He's thinking maybe I can get this case settled and I can get back to my honeycombs and life or whatever it is that he was doing. He he just takes him by the hand. He says, what is it that you have to tell me? There's an anticipation here in the Greek. He wants to know, you got something good for me. Tell me. Now let's continue in 20 to 22. And he said, this is the nephew, The Jews have agreed to ask you to bring Paul down to the council tomorrow as though they were going to inquire somewhat more closely about him. And listen to this. He says in 21, but do not be persuaded by them. For more than 40 of their men are lying in ambush for him who have bound themselves by an oath either to eat or drink till they have killed him. And now they are ready, waiting for your consent. Boy, there's, a, there's raw emotion in that text right there. He's emphatically pleading with him. And the tribune responds by dismissing the young man, charging him, tell no one uh, that you have informed me of these things. Now, Paul's nephew very quickly included 11 details in his report. And this is absolutely amazing to me. This young man really knew how to pay attention. He knew how to listen. And he knew how to memorize important bits of information. Young people in the room, you need to learn from this young man right now. Okay? The details here are extraordinary. That he had the mental capacity as a young person to take this information in. To hold on to it so he could recite it. Pretty good stuff. And and let me just tell you, too, young people, pay attention to what's going on around you always. You never know when God might be setting you up to use you for something really cool like this. You never know. So, so, you know, just set aside with the video game talk and, and, you know, and all that computer game talk and all of that stuff. Just clear your minds of that stuff once in a while and just pay attention to what's going on around you. You never know how God will use you. Okay? RuneScape will be there tomorrow. Whatever it is that you play, 
League of Legends. My guys over there are experts. I have no idea what that means. All right, 11 details. The Jews have reached an agreement. Number two, they will approach the tribune with a petition. Number three, the petition involves a meeting of the Sanhedrin on the next day. Number four, they expect the tribune to bring Paul down to the council hall, hall of hewn stone, in which the Sanhedrin meets. Number five, these are real quick. They're, you know, they're essential, but it's good just to fly through them. Number five, they will tell the tribune that they want to examine the case of Paul more thoroughly, but this is a pretext. Number six, the conspiracy involves over 40 Jews. Seven, these men will lie in ambush waiting for an opportunity to kill Paul. Eight, they have bound themselves with an oath. Nine, they have resolved not to eat or drink. Ten, they are ready now. They are ready now. They have made all the necessary arrangements. And eleven, they are merely waiting for your, for the tribune's consent to the petition. Look at those details. Every one of those comes right out of that couple of verses. Was this young guy sharp or what? Wow. And the phrase... Do not be persuaded. You see it there in verse 21? It usually expresses in the scripture a prohibition. But here it formulates an emphatic request or plea. Paul's nephew, as I alluded to already, Paul's nephew literally pleaded with the tribune not to be persuaded by the Jews when they come to him the next morning with their petition to bring Paul, his uncle, again before, meeting, before a meeting before the Sanhedrin. It's as if he said, please, please don't fall for their trap and send my uncle to them. Don't do that, please. The boldness of this young man to address the highest Roman official in that area is extraordinary as well. And so young people, pay attention to what's going on around you. Listen, take in information, prepare to be used by God and be bold in when you bring the information to whoever it is that you need to bring it to. This is amazing stuff here. I love it. I love it when the scriptures highlight young people because young people are looked down upon in our culture. They were looked down upon in that culture and they have extraordinary potential, don't they? They do. And sometimes we need to stop treating them like little kids. Yeah, there's a guy back there going, amen, Pastor Phil, this is my new church. Right? I don't know if he went that far, but that's where I took, I took it there for him. And hopefully that little seed got in there and there will be no roundup anywhere near that. The tribune obliged the young man, right? He did. It's like he agreed with him. Okay, you give me the information. But before sending him away, he gave him a strong warning not to tell anyone he had spoken with him, didn't he? He said that. Don't tell anyone about this conversation. And I think that the type of, this nephew was the type of person who would not go around and blab about it. He could take that and it was, a, it was a t the type of information that was between two people and he would hang on to that. And the reason why the tribune said that, of course, is because he did not want the Jews to find out that he knew about their plan. Because why? They would change their plan. They would come up with another strategy. So the tribune was, was pretty wise in his decision to say, hey, young man, go ahead and keep that on the DL, homie, right? Now look at how the plan to save Paul further unfolds in 23 to 24. Then he called two of the centurions. This is the tribune here. The tribune called two of the centurions and said, get ready, and this is insanity, get ready, 200 soldiers, with 70 horsemen and 200 spearmen to go as far as Caesarea at the third hour of the night. Also provide mounts for Paul to ride and bring him safely to Felix, the governor. The tribune, man, when he got the word, he told the young man, go ahead and go back out there. Go say goodbye to your uncle. Don't say a word to anyone, right? And he immediately takes action. He calls two centurions to him. Centurions oversaw a platoon or battalion of a hundred soldiers each. Century, you get it a hundred years. That's the idea. So these guys oversee a hundred soldiers each. These guys, he, he calls two of them to come right over to him and then he gives them instructions which include six things. He wants them to do six things. Say six things. Are you awake? Making sure you're awake. I know there's a lot of information. You think, where's this going? Doesn't feel like it's going anywhere. It's going to go somewhere. Trust me. 
Six things he commands them to do. First, get ready, 200 soldiers. Now, soldiers here is a reference to Roman legionaries. Roman legionaries were the most formidable, they were the most formidable troops of antiquity, of the old days. They were the heavy infantry men of the Roman army. They were Rome's best and most effective short-range weapon, if you want to refer to them as a weapon. Like killer bees, they would literally swarm and destroy an enemy platoon or group or what have you with clubs, swords, and they had these massive shields, and they, they would use the shields to block strikes and arrows and all these things, but they would also use the shield to smash you and to bulldoze you and to smash you into the ground and to crush you. These guys were super bad to the bone. They were. They were no joke. He also said, get ready, 70 horsemen. These were the light cavalry troops. Their job was to, you know, stay close, but also to go out and patrol and intercept enemies before they got close to the person or object they were protecting. They were Rome's long-range weapon, if you will. They were superb horsemen, expert riders who carried medium-length swords. Their style of attack was uh, particularly gruesome. They would fly up on an enemy at full speed on the horse, hold out the sword, head off. Or they would slash the torso. They'd just be on you so quick, there's not a whole lot you can do. By the time you got your shield up, you were already getting blasted. And a horse can ride how fast? How fast can they run? 40, 50 miles an hour? So just imagine getting hit by a sharp, medium-length sword that's being held out, and you're standing there minding your business, talking to Freddy, and think, head gone. That's who these guys were. They were amazing. Also, get ready, 200 spearmen. These were javelin throwers. They were Rome's medium-range weapon. The typical javelin was about eight feet long, and these guys could launch one about 90 meters. That's longer than a football field. They have this thing. And these guys were bad to the bone too, man. Now, the total number of troops here that he wanted to put together was 470 troops. That's amazing to me. And that, that grouping was comprised of short, medium, and long-range fighters, right? He had all of his bases covered here. If somebody comes after us via horseback, we'll intercept them out on the plains. If, if somebody gets past the, the light cavalry, we'll start hucking javelins at them. If that doesn't work, I got the legionnaires here. They'll slice them to pieces. There's a strategy here. Now, this force, this group, 470, could easily sack, easily sack any town in that vicinity by itself. Any town. I'm not talking about, you know, I'm talking about a whole town. That This group had the ability and the skill set and the weaponry to and the ferocity to take out an entire small town. No problem. You know, villagers would be like, ah, there's nothing they could do. These guys would just plow through them like a hot knife through butter. It reminds me of Something that I read last week, uh, written by, or actually he said it, and then it was quoted, written down. Marcus Luttrell, does that name ring a bell to you? Marcus Luttrell, the former Navy SEAL and author of The Lone Survivor. Pretty amazing movie. He said last week during an interview uh, some very interesting things that reminded me of this text. He was asked to give his take on the ISIS situation near the Al-Assad air base in Iraq where 300 Marines are currently training Iraqi soldiers. ISIS is, is currently conducting small attacks on the base. They've taken out a city. They've basically overtaken a city, al-Baghdari or something of one of those names, that's very close to the base. And so now ISIS is conducting suicide attacks and, and small arms attacks on Al-Assad, where these Marines are. And in typical fashion, our government is dragging its feet. And so now you have 300 Marines and a boatload of Iraqi soldiers that are being threatened by this massive, savage group. And Latrell was asked how to defeat ISIS in general, but more particularly at the base. This is amazing what he said. Here's what he said, and I quote, 
Best thing you could do is jerk the chains off those Marines and let them get to work. <laughs> right? He says, with 300 Marines, you can probably take over Iraq if you wanted to and get rid of ISIS completely. Make no mistake about it, Marines are war fighters. I mean, they are really, really good at what they do. The only time they are not good at what they do is when someone puts the shackles on them, which is what they've had for six years during this administration. 300 Marines. In a similar way to those 300 Marines over there, this 470 battle-hardened Roman soldiers could take out the ISIS of their day, that 40-plus group of zealots with a flash. There's just no comparison to the firepower. Those guys who had vowed to assassinate Paul were no match for this force that the tribune assembled. And, and some scholars say, well, I, I don't know if that's actually what happened because that's a bit overkill. Not when the tribune's Heine was riding on this thing. Paul was a Roman citizen, right? Roman citizens were like gold in those days. You did all that you could to protect them. 470 is small. When, he, when the guys got to Caesarea, it was probably like, why would you only send 470? You know, well, they only had a thousand at the Tower of Antonia, which was their fortress where these guys left from. There was only a thousand men stationed at that base. He sent almost half of his entire group. What if something else happened in the city? Craziness. The fourth, fifth, and sixth things he instructed them to do, right? He, remember, he instructed the centurions. Also said, be ready to leave for Caesarea at the third hour. What's the third hour? 9 p.m. This is a night mission. This is a stealth mission. Nine o'clock at night, that's when I want you guys to bounce. That's when you're going to go do this. He also said provide a mount or horse or mounts for Paul to ride. They weren't going to make Paul walk. They wanted him on a horse or a donkey or something of that nature. And then lastly, deliver Paul safely to Felix, the governor. Now, the Tribune also prepared an official letter which described the situation that was to be delivered to Phoenix, or Phoenix. I don't know where that came from. Felix. This was customary and required because Felix, not Phoenix, Felix was the Tribune's superior officer. So you couldn't just send a group with a prisoner up there. You had to send official documentation. And he prepared a letter, right? Now let's just quickly go over Governor Felix's background. His name was Marcus Antonius Felix. He had a powerful and influential brother named Pallas who had Paul with Emperor Claudius. It was because of Pallas that Felix, his brother, it was because of his brother that Felix was actually promoted to governor. This guy had such great pull. Now, Felix's district was Samaria, the northern part of the province of Judea. According to Suetonius, he had three wives and they were all three princesses. This guy was working triple time. I'm married to one princess. Keep my hands full. This guy had three literal, Rachel's no princess, believe me, and she would never claim to be. So if you're hearing me down there, honey, I love you. This guy was literally married to three real princesses. Think Disney, you know, think Stupid little sappy Disney cartoon movie. Oh, the princess. Yes, princesses. These were some important gals. Now, two of them were named Drusilla. They had the same name. So I'm sure a lot of times, Drusilla, come over here. They both came walking. Right? I don't know. Drusilla. And that's kind of a bizarre name, Drusilla. That doesn't connote beauty to me. We don't know the third one's name at all. Tacitus, he was a historian too, referred to Felix as tyrannical. So he was this tyrannical leader, kind of a brutal dictator type of governor, if you will. And the reason why Tacitus called him tyrannical was because he very often used harsh measures to suppress riots in Caesarea. He would meet a riot with extreme force and prejudice. In AD 58, the inhabitants of Caesarea, the people that were under his jurisdiction, if you will, appealed to the emperor who was Nero at the time and told him about the riots. Felix was recalled, but Pallas, his brother, made sure that he was not convicted. 
And also, like the last little point, is like other Roman officials, Felix was also corrupt. He loved bribes. He would take a bribe. He would do what you wanted him to do if you handed him some cash. Now look at verses 25 to 30. So that's the, that's the context. That's what's playing out here. Here's the letter, and he wrote a letter to this effect. This is a letter that's going to accompany the 470 and Paul. He says, Claudius Lysias, to his excellency the governor Felix, greetings. This man was seized by the Jews and was about to be killed by them when I came upon them with the soldiers and rescued him, having learned that he was a Roman citizen. And desiring to know the charge for which they were accusing him, I brought him down to their council. I found that it was, uh, I found that he was being accused about questions of their law, but charged with nothing deserving death or imprisonment. And when it was disclosed to me that there would, uh, would be a plot against the man, speaking of Paul again, I said, I sent him to you at once, ordering his accusers also to state before you what they have against him. That's the letter. Sounds pretty good, right? Let's notice a few things about that letter. Notice how he identified himself by name, the author of the letter, Claudius Lysias. That's the name of the tribune. Have any of you been wondering how I came up with his name several weeks ago when we began to talk about this stuff, right? It's like, how do you know, Phil? Well, this is how I know right there in that text. That's how I know his name, Claudius Lysias. I've said it several times. If you were wondering, there you go. Also notice how he honored and greeted the governor. You see that there? What does he say? To his what? Excellency. There's some, some nice lip service. There's a nice little praise. There's a nice little salutation. You're excellent, pal. Right? Notice his embellishment. <laughs> right? You're going to write a letter to the big guy. You want to make yourself look good, right? Notice this embellishment. Having learned... That he was a Roman citizen. The tribune stretched the facts here. He said that he rescued Paul from the Jews after he learned about his Roman citizenship. <laughs> you notice that there? The truth is the tribune didn't discover Paul's citizenship until after he had bound him and brought him into the barracks to be flogged. He's trying to make himself look a little bit like a hero here. I saw this tumult and, and, and they were beating the snot out of this guy. And then somebody told me he's a Roman citizen. I flew down there with like a hundred guys and we pulled him out of there. Man, we flew in with a Huey and rescued him right there. That's what he's trying to make it look like. He's like Rambo here, right? Right, you know, little embellishment here. Whatever. These people, you know, you always have to have the right military terminology. It would have been a Huey in the Nam days, right? Today it's a Blackhawk. Thank you. You're kind of right. He embellished. He said, hey, I found out he was a Roman citizen. I went down there and, and took care of him. Notice how he conveniently left out some important details, right? How about the riot in the temple courts? <laughs> you see that in there? Huh? Yeah? No, you don't see it in there. The riot is actually what led to Paul's rescue, right? That's what led the tribune to intervene. How about the handcuffs that he prematurely slapped on Paul's wrists. You see it right there? No, it's not in the letter, <laughs> right? Why would that be on the letter? That would get him in trouble. He's a Roman citizen. You're not supposed to handcuff Roman citizens. How about the attempted flogging of Paul, <laughs> right? Strap him up. Let's do it. I'm a Roman citizen. My bad. That's not in the letter. None of that is in the letter, right? None of those things are mentioned there. Why? Because they would reflect negatively on his leadership and record. He knew this, and that's why he so casually excluded those things. And wrote all this other stuff that made him look like Sylvester Stallone. He did. Notice his investigation and then observation. Desiring to know the charge for which they were accusing him, I brought him down to their council. This is true. I found that he was being accused about questions of their law. Remember, they were flying around and talking and swinging about the resurrection. Something that Romans just did not care about or know anything about. He says, man, I, I listened to their case and it just didn't seem like he had, they had anything on him. They didn't, they didn't had nothing to charge him with that would be deserving of death or imprisonment. That's his observation. That's his discovery. Or that's his investigation and his observation. Now notice his discovery. Here's what he discovered through all of this. When it was disclosed to me that there would be a plot against the man. What? To kill him, right? So he made this discovery. The young man, the nephew came and told him what was going on. So that's true too. 
And notice his prompt response, the last thing that he really included in his letter. I sent him to you at once. And this is true, he did. Soon as he found out, he was Johnny on the spot. And it says, ordering his accusers also to state before you what they have against him. Now that's amazing. That's, I love that. Okay, we're going to send Paul up there. I don't think he's guilty of anything. We're going to send him up there. It'll be safe and he can talk to the governor. But not only is Paul going to go up there, but you whole group over here that keep accusing him, wanting to kill him, you're going to go up there to the high, high court, the Roman court. You're going to go before the governor and you're going to state your case against him, right? So those Pharisees and Sadducees and those 40 had to go up there and report. They had to drive the 60, ride 60 some odd miles and go up there. So I love that. They weren't getting out of this deal. They had to go up and testify. Now look at 31 to 32. So the soldiers, according to their instructions, took Paul and brought him by night to Antipatris, Antipatris, if you will. And on the next day, they returned to the barracks, letting the horsemen go on with him. Speaking of Paul, that night, the soldiers carried out the tribune's order. At the third hour at 9 o'clock, they began to march all the way to Antipatris. Antipatris was 35 miles away, 35 miles away. It was a Roman military outpost which was used as a rest stop between Jerusalem and Caesarea. It had been built by Herod the Great in honor of his father, Antipater, Antipater. To make it there in one night would have been grueling, especially for the foot soldiers. You just think about that right now. You're chilling. It's 9 o'clock at night, and now I need you to walk. Take this guy, and I need you to hike to Stockton. How many of you would be quick to do that? I would be like, dude, I, my show's coming on. I need to sleep. I have to go to work tomorrow, you know? I mean, seriously, this would have been grueling for those foot soldiers at least. The next day, the legionnaires and javelin men, uh, they returned to the barracks, right? They went back to Jerusalem, went back to the Tower of Antonia, while the cavalry troops continued onward to Caesarea with Paul. That part of the journey between uh, between uh, uh, Antipatris and Caesarea was eh, maybe 25 miles and it wasn't as dangerous. And so the hardcore troops went back to their base while the cavalry guys took the rest of the journey. Now look at 33 to 35. We're getting there. When they had come to Caesarea, so they made it to Caesarea, right? The cavalry troops with Paul. When they come to Caesarea and delivered the letter to the governor, they presented Paul uh, also with the letter before him. That's speaking of the governor. On reading the letter, he asked what province he was from. And when he learned that he was from Cilicia, he said, I will give you a hearing when your accusers arrive. And he commanded him to be guarded in Herod's praetorium. Okay, so when they arrived at Caesarea, the leading officer of the cavalry group there, the leading centurion, whoever it was, he presented the letter and Paul to the governor, Felix, right? When Felix read it, he, you know, he he asked Paul, he very quickly asked Paul what province he was from. He wanted to make sure that the case fit within his jurisdiction. Roman officials were known for this. They did not want to do extra work. If he's from somebody else's province, then, you know, we'll have, you know, Joe over there take care of it because I don't want to have to deal with it. You saw this with... Uh, Pontius Pilate, right? Well, he's not really under my jurisdiction. He's under Herod's. And so that Roman governor sent Jesus to Herod, right? He wanted to get out of it. I don't want to do work if I don't have to. This was prevalent. Unfortunately for him, Cilicia was under his jurisdiction at that time. And so he granted the hearing. He may not have wanted to do it, but he had no choice. There was one stipulation there in the text, and that's that the accusers had to come too. He was not going to begin to talk with Paul until his accusers showed up. This was going to be a legitimate court, uh, court case where both sides presented what happened or what was going on. In the meantime, uh, Felix had Paul brought to Herod's praetorium, or that's the governor's mansion, if you will. That's what praetorium is. Praetorium is where he would be guarded. Um, that particular structure may have featured a cell block in the basement or something of that nature, and that might have been where they put Paul, or he may have been free to roam about in the building. I think that's probably how it went. He wasn't shackled or any of that. He was just put in that space because it was well guarded and safe. Closing. Lots of information, right? Just lots of stuff. It's like a cognitive download, right? I'm not the biggest fan of just 
reiterating stuff like this either. I, you know, you, you, become, you become really challenged when you come to a text like this and you say, I, I don't know how this will preach because it's just some narrative and it's just telling about what happened to Paul in the next scene, you know? So all week it was really challenging. Well, not all week, but the beginning part of the week, it was very challenging for me to find a meaningful application. This text, this passage, which is huge, it features no particular doctrines. There's no doctrine there. It's, you know, just some historical narrative. That's it. I read through it four times and I kept saying, God, show me something. What do you want your people at RHC to take away from this thing? Just this narrative? Is that it? What do you want? Show me something here. I read through it a few more times, you know, probably maybe 10 times I read through this thing. And each time, (laughs) I got nothing. And then, boom, it came to me. I thought, okay, that's what we'll run with at the end. It's there. Verse 16 is what hit me like a freight train. Now the son of Paul's sister heard of their ambush, so he went and entered the barracks and told Paul. That's the turning point text. I began to think about this. Over 40 extremely, insanely zealous Jewish men, along with members of Israel's Supreme Court, literally, think of it like that, the Sanhedrin, came together to plot for how to kill Paul, right? 40 plus, and then add the Sanhedrin to it. This is incredible. You got all these guys. What was their plan again? What was their plot? Send word to the tribune. I'm just paraphrasing. Send word to the tribune to have him brought before us for another hearing, and we'll kill him as he draws close, right? Sounds like a pretty good plot. Seems like a pretty good plot. To me, it does. Hey, we want to try this case a little bit more closely. Just send him down. We'll have some guys hide in the bushes or in the crowd. Bam, they'll sling him. They'll kill him. They'll shank him. It's over with. We got our man. We're good to go. Pretty clever plan if you think about it. And then we read in verse 16 how a pimple-faced, deodorant-lacking teenage boy screwed up their plot. (laughs) The highest court in Israel with zealots. These guys are not stupid. They're educated. And this guy launches their entire plot, screwed them up from head to toe, jacked them. Did any of you bother to pick up on that as we were narrating? A hundred and twelve of Israel's best and brightest brought to absolute ruin by a kid. Man. Then I was reminded of 1 Corinthians 1, 27 to 29. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. Did he not? God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even the things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. Hallelujah, amen. But I realized something else, equally important, more important. The young man who ruined their plot was just a tool in the hand of the providential God. That's all he was. Just a tool in the hand of God. It was by God's providence that their plot was foiled and the young man was merely a tool that God used to activate and to fulfill his providential plan, which was to deliver Paul from the Jews and bring him safely to Caesarea. And the tribune and the centurions and the 470 soldiers, they were all just tools in the hand of God for his purpose. That's all they were. That's mind-blowing. You need to know something here, people. Friends. There is no such thing as happenstance or chance. It does not exist. 
The young man did not do what we always say. He just happened to be at the right place at the right time. He was brought within earshot of those men by a sovereign providential God. He may not have known that. He didn't just, hey, oh, my Hot Wheel went under this door. Oh, what's going on? He was positioned. That is the main point of this text. If there's a doctrine, it's the doctrine of God's providence. And I got really, really excited because I felt like running with this idea. I talked to Kelly on Monday or Tuesday night. When did we talk? Monday night? Monday night, he and I connect. When he's planning the cert, you know, when he's planning his part of the ministry that he does, Aaron and these guys, when they think through music, it, it's cool that, you know, Kelly will call me or Aaron, he'll talk, hey, where are you going with the text and all that? And I told him, I got nothing. It's just a narrative. I don't know what to do, but I think it has something to do with God's providence. Kelly's like, that'll preach tomorrow. So that's where I was going. And then I turned to a commentary and read this. Later in the week, as I was studying, this narrative passage contains no doctrinal truths or practical exhortations. It merely recounts an event in Paul's life. Yet no passage of Scripture could more clearly illustrate the providence of God. And that's where I just went, amen. I'm headed in the right direction. I'm not coming up with something new. Now listen to this definition of providence. This is amazing. Providence is the sovereign, divine superintendence of all things, guiding them toward their divinely predetermined end in a way that is consistent with their created nature, all to the glory and praise of God. This divine, sovereign, and benevolent control of all things by God is the underlying premise of everything that is taught in Scripture. Folks, we have a God, many of us in this room do, through Christ, who has sovereignly foreordained all things, the good, the bad, and the ugly. The good, the bad, and the ugly to a particular end, which is for our own good and benefit. And to that which is more important and most essential, his glory. Amen? God is in control of your now and your future. He is orchestrating the events that surround your life, the things that affect you, even the hard stuff, even the stuff that doesn't make sense. But that's okay, right? We don't have to understand everything in this life. I'm glad I don't. I don't know what I would do with that kind of knowledge. Actually, I do. I would not live by faith. And here's the deal. Here's the exhortation. We need to learn to trust our God who not only understands everything but has also planned everything and who loves us and who has promised to sanctify and make us like Jesus and to glorify us one day. Amen. God is in control, friends. He was in control in this situation, positioning people, doing things, delivering that's your God if you're in Christ Jesus. You don't have to worry about tomorrow. You don't have to be anxious for next week. You don't have to suffer because of anxiety and these sorts of things, because of the uncertainty. You don't know what's going to happen. Rachel and I just got to notice we've got to move out of our house. What the heck? Phil, practice what you preach. Our landlord sent us a you're going to have to move letter. It wasn't our landlord who sent the letter. It was God, wasn't it? He's got something else in store for us. Shouldn't I be excited about what that is? Oh, we'll be in the poorhouse. We'll be in the Salvation Army. What will we do? We'll be in a duplex. Who cares? 
I got to start living this stuff. I got to start believing it because just like you, I get hit with surprises all the time, man. Who was hit by a surprise this week? Be honest. Did anyone in here get slammed with something? You're just like, mommy? Yeah. And we think that, oh, man, I can't believe what that guy did. I can't believe what she did. I can't believe what that happened. I can't believe my landlord. Boy, I tell you what, when they put this house on the market, everyone who comes through here to look at this place, I'm going to say, this house really isn't all that great. It's got leaks. Creaky. I wouldn't do it. Are we going to trust God who is sovereign, who is in control, who has foreordained all things, the good, bad, and the ugly, and he's working them all for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purposes and most importantly, for his glory. Even what you've been through. (laughs) And what you've been through. Not being able to find a job for that long. What you're going through with your health and what you've been through. You suffering the way that you suffered at that employer. You and you. There isn't a person in this room who hasn't suffered, who isn't suffering, who isn't experiencing difficulty. And our God loves us. And he's in control. And the things that you're going through are momentary and light sufferings in this life. Through it, he's making you like Christ. Don't kick against the goads. Suffer well because he's taking you somewhere. He's leading you. He is. He can be trusted. As hard as that may be at times, his word, you can bank on it. You can bank on it. You can build your life and future on it. Father, help us to do that. It's not something that I can make myself do. I try. But you can. You can build up our faith, strengthen our faith, and surround us by by your people who can help to build up our faith, encourage us and exhort us, pick us up when we're down. Christ, thank you. Thank you for the struggles. They are meaningful, meaningful struggles, meaningful difficulties. They have meaning. Nothing that you do is in vain or without purpose. May we accept that reality today. It's by your providence that we go through what we go through. And after all, our hope isn't in this life or in ease or in, in, in you know, not having a problematic existence or any of those things. Our hope is in Christ who suffered like no one else who died in our place. We're deserving of nothing but wrath from you, and yet you've called us to love. You've called us to yourself, but you have not ensured that life won't be hard. Jesus promised that in this life we would have trouble, but he also promised to never leave us nor forsake us. When we come to the communion table tonight, may we be nourished by the broken body of Christ and by the blood of Christ. May we be satisfied by his sacrifice. May we be built up, encouraged, strengthened, empowered by his resurrection to press on each day 
to suffer well for the name of Christ. Help us to become more and more like him each moment. Thank you, Jesus, for your word, a simple narrative, and yet it is extraordinarily profound because it touches on one of the most extraordinary things, and that is our God who is sovereign and who has foreordained all for the benefit of those who love him and are called according to his purpose and for ultimately his glory. May we glorify you this week in the name of Jesus. And we pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Help yourselves. This is a moment for believers, though. If you have yet to receive Christ as your Lord and Savior, please abstain.